9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm in New York City, coming to you from our nation's capital, or in that vicinity, of course, being this time of the week, we have Dr. Kavita Patel, late of the Obama White House and uh, practicing physician. How are you doing today? Kavita? Very excited for this episode today. As I would hope you would be each week, but it's a very good episode. Mm-hmm. Also joining us in the, I don't know, probably in the Washington, D.C. area, but you can never be sure, is Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman. Where are you today, Alex? Undisclosed location. I can see from the pictures behind you that you're in a family location and a man who's always in an undisclosed location because everybody wants a piece of him, Evo Dalder of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. How are you today, Evo? Uh, I'm great. I'm actually in the best, wonderful, most wonderful city that everybody thinks they should fly over in Chicago. So it's wonderful to be here. As a product of Illinois, someone born in Illinois, I have to embrace that thought as well. Clearly today we're going to talk about where we are in the conflict in Ukraine and in our response to the conflict in Ukraine. I have to say it's it's Thursday and uh, I watched last night on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, a show that I join on a pretty regular basis, a lively discussion between you, Alex, and Lawrence O'Donnell in which I think he was pushing back a little bit on the idea that we ought to do more. And I, you know, as he was sort of making all the core arguments that one hears, you know, like we can't afford to get nose to nose with the Russians. You pushed back. Now that you've had a little time to reflect, I thought you did a great job. I also thought he was pressing his point well, but clearly this is going to escalate. And if it escalates, we got to do more. And we also ought to consider what we can do to stop it from escalating. How are your thoughts evolving on this now, Alex? Let's just listen at the uh, t- today's news or yesterday evening's news about you know the Russians uh, potentially staging a provocation in the form of a chemical or biological attack. I mean, is that something the Western world or the U.S. could sit on the sidelines of a nuclear accident as a result of a Russian attack? Is that something that the U.S. could sit on the sidelines of when it has a direct impact on our uh, European allies, uh, subject to Article Five? We tend to think in kind of terrestrial military terms, but there are other threats. Of course, we know cyber is one of them. Can we sit, afford to sit on the sidelines or are we compelled to escalate? So I guess most of my, uh, a significant portion of my argumentation tends to be that this is a major theater war between the largest country in the world and the largest country in Europe. And that has every likely possibility of spilling over and uh, getting larger and drawing us in the, the you know, precedents of the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century with two world wars, and our decisions are going to get harder. They're only going to get harder from here. I mean, they were easier before the war started. There are things that we didn't consider back then that we thought that were beyond the pale, sanctioning the Russian central bank, SWIFT, 
all these things, massive divestiture from uh, Russia's economy that we couldn't even conceive of that now are the easy button, frankly, in a lot of ways. So it's only going to get harder. Thus, we should start to think a little bit deeper than just the next 24 hours, the next couple of days into the weeks and months and think about the kinds of hard decisions we might be for- forced to make in the future and make some calculated risks, exercise some risk-informed options now to try to avoid this becoming a protracted war that drags us in. I think there's enough logic, enough weight on that basis to start making courageous decisions that do not put us on an escalatory ladder with Russia based on what we know and what are also Russian kind of red lines and Russian deep-seated fears about escalation and do more to arm Ukraine so like this, we don't have to put boots on the ground. That's the fundamental argument. And then, of course, poke me holes, pretty large holes in this ar- argument that somehow we're going to, you know, we're, some of the things that we're doing now or considering now are escalatory and compel the Russians to re- react. But I'll pause there. Well, Eva, I'm going to ask you the same question, but I'm sympathetic to what, what Alex is saying here and would add, for the, for example, you know, people say, well, we couldn't have a no-fly zone, and I, I don't want to get into the merits of whether it'll work or not, but we couldn't have a no-fly zone because the Russian, if we engage with the Russians, you know, they'll incu- accuse us of involvement and that'll lead to escalation. But the Russians are accusing us of, of, of having nuclear chemical weapons factories in Ukraine right now. The Russians have accused us of doing all sorts of things we don't do. They don't need us to do it, to accuse us and use it as a motivation. They're accusing the Ukrainians of using a maternity hospital as a military base, and that's justifying their bombing a bunch of women and babies. So I find it kind of interesting that we constrain ourselves, lest the Russians make an accusation, and they're making worse accusations even as we speak. So, I mean, I think there are two sort of two big issues. There is the immediate reality of what's happening on the ground in the middle of Europe. In fact, if it were happening anywhere else, it would be equally horrific, equally unacceptable from a moral and a humanitarian perspective. And we all we all ought to ask every day, what is it that we can do more, better to to find a way to halt this this conflict? And I think pressing that point and, and Alex and others pressing the point, what can we do is the right debate to be having constantly. And the second is, I think, the geostrategic context. I do think that February 24 will be remembered like December 7 or November 9 or September 11 as a, a turning point, a pivot point in history. And things are fundamentally different. I don't think this is just a war between Russia and Ukraine, even though just a war between Russia and Ukraine in and of itself is terrific, horrific. It's, it's a larger strategic context. So I think Alex's point of having to think through what are we prepared to do and to do it sooner rather than later is, is absolutely right. You know, one question we should have asked ourselves is, if you really didn't want this war to happen, why didn't we put more troops, or in fact, troops, into Ukraine on day one in order to make day one before, that is the day one being as soon as we knew that the Russians were going to do this, which we knew back in October and started publicizing publicly in, in December. You know, I don't remember a lot of people arguing for that at the time. Even those who, are, who, who believed that this was going to be real didn't argue for that. We had troops there. there uh, yeah, were, I'm, talk, I'm talking about war. real uh, No, I'm talking no, about real troops. I understand, but I'm just saying we took yeah, we out. Had, we, had, we, had 300, we had 300 Florida National Guard people training people. That's not troops. What I mean is a, is a fundamental military commitment 
And, you know, I, in fact, I didn't argue for it, but I made, I, I did make the point that if you wanted to deter it, that's how you do it. You don't do it with sanctions. That was never going to be able to do it. Larger point, though, is the one thing we never did in the Cold War is to have a direct confrontation between U.S. and Russian troops, military confrontation. We found ways out of that. Even in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we didn't directly attack Russian capabilities. Yes, the Russians shot down an airplane that was going over their air sky, their sky at the time. That's a different issue. We never did that. And so this is a big step. If you're going to do it, my view is then you need to just do it. Then we really need to have a serious debate whether helping Ukraine in the way that the international community led by the United States helped Kuwait in 1990 is the right thing to do. And looking for half measures, whether it's no-fly zones that have no impact on the capacity of missiles, rockets, artillery, tanks that they're destroying the cities in large numbers, or humanitarian no-fly zones, which I don't know what those are. Those are you know, unarmed planes or something. I don't know what that means. Those, I think, is not realistic. There is a lot we can do more, and Alex has written about it in the, in the, in the Washington Post in terms of providing capabilities, counter-battery fire, radars, all kinds of equipment, assuming the Ukrainians know how to use them, or we'll, just, we'll train them in Poland in order to know how to use them. Now, I don't know, no problem with that, none. And all of that we should do, we can and should do. So this whole debate about the MiG-21s and all of that is a bunch of nonsense. But putting our forces directly in is a step. And if we're going to do it, we just need to take the step all together. I'm not yet prepared to say that that's where we are. I recognize that three weeks from now, that may change. If the Russians do use chemical weapons, to coin a phrase, that might alter my calculation. A famous phrase we remember from 2012. In Syria, in the Syria context. So that's how I think we should look at that. It is a serious, serious decision that is not without risk. And then I would rather go all the way and say, this is what we're going to do, and then force the escalation onus back onto the Russians. I would just add two things here. Yesterday, we had on the podcast former president of Estonia, Tumas Henrik Ilves, and he said, if chemical weapons get used, it does change the calculus. And regardless of what the U.S. will do, Europe will respond in a different way than they have so far. Just one of the two fingers on doctrine. Russia's doctrine is not escalation to nuclear war in use of uh, uh, you know, air-to-air exchanges or whatever that, or uh, even tactical employment of forces against each other. It's in, in case of existential threat. The fear is that you get up the escalatory ladder really quickly because there's a confrontation but if it's limited, frankly, it does not necessarily spill over. There's just air-to-air combat. We're striking the air defense systems. We're not going after strategic targets or anything of that nature. It does not automatically, that's a big leap to get to that point anyway. It's just something to point out about the doctrine. It's existential threat. And we automatically think just because there's a shooting match, we escalate all the way up. Yeah. And the, the final point I wanted to make is that last week we had General Breedlove on, and uh, who I, I guess you guys both know. and. Uh, he was the one making the point about humanitarian corridors. He signed that letter. And what he means is, you know, air cover for humanitarian corridors, but it's armed air cover for humanitarian corridors to protect innocents. Kavito, what are the questions on your mind? Certainly, as a doctor looking at pictures of maternity hospital getting bombed yesterday, it must have been very clear to you that we've we've gone to a really ugly place. Oh, I mean, yes, there's actually a 
quite a significant call. You can imagine given rates of COVID actually in Russia, which are sky high, as well as now Ukraine, Poland, there's no measurement in Ukraine, but one can only assume that it's escalating there. There's actually been a call from various kind of on the ground actors, Doctors Without Borders and others for PPE. And so uh, we'll put that in the show notes, reliable places for people to do something. I know a lot of people have been wanting to, but this is efforts to at least even protect the health workers that are there as well as the people that are there, which is disturbing to see kind of all these uh, savage issues collide, uh, an uncontrolled pandemic with a dictator that has basically used useless vaccines on his own people. But I'll ask a question that's not related to that because it's, I, I like to ask the questions that are much more general that I think a lot of our listeners might. So I, I would argue our sanctions are already proving consequential for Russia. Is there any reason to think that the pressure is so overwhelming that Putin could be overthrown or do both of you feel like his hold on power is pretty secure? I've been pretty adamant about the fact this is the beginning of the end. I mean, the expectations were that he was going to be able to remain in power until 2036, another two terms. That is now highly unlikely. There'll be some sort of transition somewhere between now and then, still a long ways off, 14 years. But it's also hard to divine that this ends with his removal. He has a very, very tight control over the country. His use of repression has magnified many fold, even recently over the past year. But there are, un, un, there are consequences to this kind of large war and a war that's being mismanaged in this way that are actually uh, uh, rhyme with other historical patterns with regards to Russia and the Russian empire. I think right now we're seeing relatively small scale political protests, anti-war protests. When those turn socioeconomic, and that's likely to bear out over the course of weeks and months, then he's going to have some serious problems on his hands because he's also not going to be able to keep paying his security services and all their kind of villas and, uh, and all the, their uh, riches have, have evaporated. And those body bags of soldiers coming back by the thousands. Right now, they've admitted to 500 or so. Even the U.S. estimate of two to 4,000 is way under the mark. It's probably somewhere in between what the Ukrainians are saying uh, and the U.S. Uh, top estimate. Uh, Ukrainians are saying 12,000. It's probably closer to about eight or 9,000 based on, on um, reasonably good estimates of equipment losses. I think all those things start to, to play, uh, play very heavily and at minimum some to a diplomatic off-ramp to this, if not you know, ultimately at the, uh, at the end of a long road, maybe he, he doesn't, uh, he's not still in power. But that's, I think that's really too hard to say. I think what's clear is that all these pressures are going to force him to go to a, a diplomatic route. If I can just interject yeah. here, sort of in the liner notes kind of vein that Kavita uh, was talking about, if we continue at the same rate using those estimates sometime late next week or the following week, Russia will pass a number of killed in action, a number of Russian soldiers who were killed in action in 10 years in Afghanistan. So in under a month in Ukraine, they'll lose more soldiers than they did in 10 years in Afghanistan, which was 15,000. Evo. Yeah, so uh, I, I think Alex is. I, I'm not as optimistic on the timelines, but but I think I am convinced that in in the end, he is not going to be able to survive in power. And how that plays out is is something TBD. That it seems to me strengthens the argument to be a little bit more cautious about how we respond 
because it strikes me, we, we actually have a pretty darn good playbook about how to deal with this. Admittedly, it took 40 years during the Cold War to get where we wanted to go, but we knew we know how the policy of containment works. We're pretty darn good at it. And I think a policy that, very, that sets clear limits on what it is that the Russians are able to do militarily, that, in my view, is, is a, a line that, that it gets drawn at NATO territory, combined with what, in effect, is the economic decoupling of the Russian economy from the global economy, or at least from the Western global economy, with all the consequences that we're seeing. I mean, we, we had a whole debate here in the United States on whether or not the U.S. should ban import of Russian oil. Nobody wants to buy Russian oil. That's part of the problem. One of the reasons we have price pressures at the moment is because even heavily discounted Russian oil, no Western company is going to buy it. And by the way, countries don't buy oil, at least not Western countries, but companies do, just for our Republican listeners, so they, they understand that. These are market-based decisions that are being in, influenced by geopolitics. I think the economic consequences of the sanctions on, on what is happening to the average Russian, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but over time everywhere else is going to be significant. So is the political isolation. Just think if you are an average 35-year-old in, in Russia, you're no longer able to fly to Sharm el-Sheikh and go, uh, and go uh, spend your visas and, and do everything you want to do. And I think that's going to have real pressure on, on Putin and his ability to, to rule effectively and ultimately may lead to the diplomatic off-ramp. I'm doubtful about that. I think it's more likely that it leads to his end in, in power, but we can see that. And so why are we pushing a potentially escalatory risky strategy by going to war against Russia when the strategy we're having is likely to work? The answer is because the people in Ukraine are suffering, which is one reason. But then are you willing to go all the way and not just do half measures, including armed humanitarian no-fly zones for humanitarian quarters, which, by the way, don't exist because the Russians are not allowing them to get out? Yeah, no, the Russians are using humanitarian quarters as, as, as shooting galleries, and, and the only ones they're proposing lead into Russia, which, of course, is a whole other kettle of fish. Alex? The people of Ukraine are the ones who are suffering and struggling here, and I don't want to get too bogged down in U.S. politics. But I did notice that today we have, you know, Madison Cawthorn out there attacking Zelensky and saying that he's promoting woke politics. We have uh, a Representative Massey repeating essentially Kremlin talking points about the existence of U.S. chemical and biological weapons facilities in Ukraine. Of course, you had the former president talking about Putin being a genius. You have Fox regularly pushing these talking points. I want to use a little bit of a kind of author's privilege here because I interviewed you for my my book, and and uh, which is just going to be finished tomorrow, actually. And I'll send you to review quotes and things. But we talked about this, and I don't think it's clear to the average American. I'm not talking about RussiaGate. I'm talking about the antipathy of Donald Trump for Ukraine, that it started before you talked about a, an attack by Russians on Ukraine boats and Trump opposed doing anything about it, that there was a long pattern, not just keeping the money for military aid that, that ended up leading to the impeachment, for which you became very well known. But, but this, was, this was Trump from beginning to end. Can, can you just elaborate on that a little? 
first, let me encourage uh, Madison Cawthorn to keep wading into this issue because he's going against the, the current of the entire American population, except for like a mi- tiny, tiny fringe that is very, very supportive of Ukraine, understands now more than, uh, you know, not just conceptually what democracy is and what fighting for democracy is and uh, uh, is is behind uh, Zelensky and behind Ukraine all the way. So that's that's fine with me. He's he's foolish enough to to not break, even though Trump has. So it's hard to say where this story begins. I think certainly uh, part of it is he was upset because he received from some criticism from the Ukrainians when he was running for office. And the, the ambassador here uh, was critical of his position on um, the uh, on Crimea and uh, the fact that Crimea is sovereign Ukrainian territory. He's upset about the fact that Ukraine was at a focal point in um, the the ledger was the focal point in getting uh, Paul Manafort tripped up and ultimately um, uh, you know convicted. He's upset that it was Ukraine that was potentially housing the CrowdStrike server. That the founder of CrowdStrike was Ukrainian, and that this was part of the, the whole. That's where the emails were. And he was upset that uh, his buddy, Vladimir Putin, wanted Ukraine and he couldn't get it. And, you know, the Ukrainian people were obstructing that. So all those things certainly were part of it. But what's what's absolutely clear is that wasn't clear in 2019 is how his activities undermined not just Ukraine and Ukrainian security, but U.S. national security, because he added to the perception that Ukraine was vulnerable for Vladimir Putin added to this idea that going after Ukraine would be of little cost. And now we're on the cusp of a, we're certainly on the cusp of a major world war in terms of like just territorial or the territorial landscape, the largest country in the world fighting the largest country in Europe that, but it hasn't pulled in all the countries, all the nations just yet, but you know, we're in a cold war, absolutely in a cold war. And there's a direct line from his activities in 2019 through the Russia scandal through his cheerleading for Putin, that brings us to this point in time where there are thousands of people suffering. And Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, you know, Mike Pompeo have blood on their hands because they enticed Putin. They encouraged Putin to, that this was a good idea and that the costs were going to be limited. So we've only got a couple more minutes before we take our break here. And I know that after the break, Kavita's got to go and, and, and Alex soon after that. Kavita, why don't you ask the next question to Eva? I'll ask something that hopefully can have a succinct answer. So thinking about what comes out of this, actually both of you, do you think Finland or Sweden wind up in NATO? And you probably have seen the kind of debate between the moderate party and the social, at least the Swiss, the Swedish social party prime minister and some what seems like political over uh, party over political over kind of what the right thing to do might be with joining NATO. So I don't think Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO right now. The transition period is a very tricky one. It just takes time to be admitted to NATO. You need 30 parliaments to ratify a change in treaty, uh, including the U.S. Congress, which doesn't move at great speed uh, on anything and maybe not even on something like this. So it's just, that's tricky. I think the larger question is what's the future of the European security system going to look like? If it is anything like it is today, I do think Finland and Sweden will eventually be members of NATO. I think that's where the trend is. They have been very close partners. I think 
Uh, notable is that in all the NATO meetings on this issue, Finland and Sweden have a seat at the table. They are actually physically at the table when there was the virtual summit with the leaders, the, lead, uh, the prime minister uh, uh, of uh, Sweden and the president of Finland were there virtually. So that's, that shows you how close that relationship is. The reality is, is that Finland or Sweden gets attacked. I think the answer of NATO is going to be different than it would be uh, if uh, than it is currently when Ukraine is being attacked. That's how close that relationship is. Alex, I'll ask you a different question. What part yeah. of the Allied response surprise, has surprised you the most? Zelensky's ability to drive uh, the European Union in a way that nobody had possibly considered. I think it's uh, him and his people, their fortitude, their ferocity in defending themselves have really inspired Europe and kind of touched the, the core values of Europe in a way that, that uh, I didn't think was, was likely or possible. And I think that's, that's an amazing shift on the economic front. I think there are the softening of positions uh, for Germany is is pretty pretty uh, momentous because of its economic horsepower. Uh, the the discussions from Finland, Sweden are 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 significant. So I think the impact there is 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 not expected. I don't think it could be it could have been expected by anybody really. I have to say personally, the Zelensky story has a lot to recommend it, but. Um, as a Jewish guy who started out in show business and ended up in foreign policy, the, the number of us is very small. Uh, and I'm so glad to see that uh, he is now carrying the banner for, for, for all of us. I have to say, by the way, he achieved a great deal more in, in show business. And for those of you who have not seen Alex's appearance on The Larry David Show, where he has operated now at a very high level of show business as well, I, I feel left behind, uh, but not by this conversation, which is very good. We're going to take a little break now, as we always do, say goodbye to listeners from the general public, tell our members uh, to hang on and, and we'll keep going. And if you're not a member, this is why you should be a member, because there's more to come. Great discussion, great guests. And uh, we'll be back in a moment. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed. 